Welcome to the Whamacast. I'm your host, Mary Kennedy, and I'm the director of the Wingate Museum of Art. Don Marr was the chair of the art department at Hendricks College from 1959 to 2000. I'm delighted to be joined today by three of Don Marr's five children, Allison, Holly, and Duke Marr. They are here to talk about their memories of their dad and their life at Hendricks as part of the Art at Hendricks exhibition, which is online and celebrates the history of the visual arts at Hendricks College. Allison of Little Rock works as a product manager in the technology industry. Holly, formerly with Axiom Corporation, still lives in her hometown of Conway. And Duke, who lives in New York City, works in the intersection of design and technology. All three, plus their sister, Ann Brittenham of Eureka Springs, are Hendricks alumni. Allison, Duke, and Holly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, so I like to begin these conversations learning more about you, your family's history, where you come from, and how your family wound up at Hendricks College. And since there's lots of us participating in this, we'll probably talk over each other, but I think we can sort that out okay. So I don't know who wants to go first, but um, where your family came from, what's your family's heritage, how you ended up in Conway? We've always been in Conway. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh Yeah. So how how would you describe that? Well, so dad actually is a, a native of St. Louis, and he grew up in Tennessee, but he got his graduate degree at the University of Fayetteville. And when he was hired at Hendricks and he came to Conway, he met my mom, who was um, recently widowed and had been a student at um, formerly um, ASTC, which is now UCA. They met, I think, through mutual acquaintances and a cocktail party, fell in love and married, and the rest is history. So tell me about your family's heritage. Dad's heritage is kind of the, the interesting one because I, I think of my father in many ways as having been an orphan who happened to have had a mother. Uh, he and his mother were not particularly close. He didn't have any siblings. His parents were divorced before he was born. And... You know, he. I think he really arrived at Hendrix, you know, in 1959 without a lot of close connections to anyone. Uh, we know very little about, you know, the Marr family heritage in particular. We would assume the name is Scotch-Irish. His mother's side of the family were, were Jewish, though I think she probably converted before he was born. So that was not a cultural heritage that resonated with him particularly, though many people would say he looked the part. Yeah. Uh, I think, in truth, Don Mar found his family when he found Camilla Mar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. I would I would echo that. I also would say that he adopted mother's family as his family, yes. and he would say that often and, um, that his and, mother's and they and they adopted him. mother's sisters were his sisters. He would mm-hmm. say that, and all of the family that she had, who originated here in Arkansas. Uh, he became his family, his adopted family. Okay. All righty. So do you know how your dad got interested in art, how he first got interested in that? Yes. Um, I, I, this is Holly. I, w- I would like to talk about that. He, as a young child, Duke already mentioned that he didn't have such a healthy home life. And I would say he probably was lacking in a little bit of self-confidence as a, as a young man in, in high school. And he was fortunate to have um, a high school teacher notice that he had some skill in drawing. And one day he was drawing a horse and the teacher said, my goodness, that is really great you should pursue a career in art. And so he did. Which is funny because he didn't draw very many horses. (laughs) Uh, I can think of maybe one or two in 500 paintings. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So he, so he went to college with the intention of, of being an art major. So he knew that's what he wanted to do when he went into college and then went on to graduate school and then ended up coming to um, Conway 
for the position at Hendricks in 1959. It's an interesting history at Hendricks with the art faculty prior to that. You know, there were uh, faculty other than the friends, uh, Lewis and Elsie friend, there were not a lot of people who taught at Hendricks for any really long period of time until your dad arrived. And that was a real stabilizing force. Um, do you know what he liked about being at Hendricks? What, why Hendricks stuck for him? Well, um, it's Holly again. I think that one of the things that was important to him was that this was a job that allowed him to continue the skills he'd learned as a assist, a graduate assistant, uh, as an instructor. And it also allowed him to pursue his life as an artist. And I think he would even in the later years have admitted that perhaps in the beginning, this was a job that allowed him to pursue his passion. But I believe by all accounts from all of the many testimonials that we've heard from his students and former colleagues that he became a really fabulous teacher and a great colleague and that this became something he really loved doing and was great at doing in addition to being a fantastic uh, visual artist. And he taught everything. He taught painting, calligraphy, sculpture. I mean, he was a one-man band teaching everything. Yes, That's exactly right. I would add on that he loved the culture at Hendricks and mm -hmm. really grew up. He was in his early 30s when he arrived, and he was not that much older than the students he was teaching. And he became friends with a lot of those students who later became colleagues, and he enjoyed the culture. It was like a little incubator where he could thrive and energize, be energized and enthusiastic about art. Mm -hmm. Well, he was quite the intellectual, too. He uh, minored, I believe, in philosophy, or he, he studied philosophy in, in Fayetteville during his graduate years. And um, I think anything intellectual was great for him. He was quite a debater, and he loved to have an intellectual conversation. So being in the world of academia really suited him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, a lot of people refer to him as a Renaissance man. And then there's this description of him in aviator sunglasses and a leather jacket and uh, boots. He must have cut quite a figure at Hendrix <laughs> at the time. He definitely did. And I think he, in addition to the aviator glasses, he was also known for his Stetson hat, uh -huh. uh, which I think he wore both because he loved it as well as ironically, because, you know, Stetson hat is, is a, you know, associate with, you know, kind of conservative people and cowboys and mm -hmm. not intellectual artists. So I think he wore it with a bit of a, of irony and, and, and also really embracing it, kind of saying the artist can be anything. And I, I think what dad most loved about Hendricks was just the community. He was very much an extrovert. He got his energy from other people. He did not focused just on himself. I'm, I'm not saying he wasn't selfish or self-centered because he was, but he loved to observe the world and all of its beauty and all of its ugliness and then reflect that back in his own art. And he think he found in Hendrix a place where he could really do that. Mm -hmm. So he has a really distinct style of painting. I mean, even, not long after I got here, I knew when I was looking at a Don Mar before I ever saw the signature. Um, and it's been <laughs> described as romantic realism. Um, to me, it feels like it has a lot of Eastern philosophy influencing it. I don't know exactly where that comes from, um, but how would you describe his paintings? Well, to pick up on that point about Eastern philosophy, he was fascinated with Asian art and he studied Asian art. And I think that that had an influence on his style. Um, he, he also loved calligraphy. The art of handwriting is a, a lost art these days, and he, he studied it, and he loved to include calligraphy in his paintings, particularly in his titles. So you could, rec you could, and that's something I think that sets him apart from other contemporary artists, is that you could recognize a Don Mar simply by the beautiful lettering also that's on many of those works. Mm-hmm. So did he learn the calligraphy in graduate school or was that something he picked up later? 
That that was something that came later. In fact, he had a special relationship with Raymond F. DeBall, who was once known as the Dean of American Calligraphy, and he went out of his way to um, uh, learn and to be taught by Raymond DeBall calligraphy, and he kept the relationship with DeBall for many years, and we have a lot of correspondence, beautiful correspondence, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. between the two of them writing back and forth. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, the the paintings have kind of a mystical quality, a kind of a spiritual quality. Was he a really spiritual person or just showed up in his paintings? I think he was extremely spiritual. And I think if 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 there were any term uh, of spirit around, you know, who he was it would probably be animism. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he believed, you know, if there is if there is anything deistic in the world, it exists in nature. Um, but he, if you look in particular at pieces like nocturnal adoration, like you know, adoration is a word for adoring a deity. I think that really comes through. Uh, so I think he was I think he was very spiritual, but he was also very anti-religion. He was not comfortable with religion, not having been raised in any faith, and was not comfortable really. Uh, being immersed in a part of the world where faith traditions were so very, very strong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the paintings have this kind of mystical quality and it's, it's interesting because they're, they're highly realistic. You know, many of them, I, at least the majority that I have seen, you can tell, you can correct me if I'm wrong. And then there are others. There's a painting called uh, Hopper's House that is of your mother's family, as I understand it. Can you talk about that painting a little bit? Because it's, it's very distinct and has a, a really different feel to it. It um, uh, certainly, I mean, obviously he's looking at Hopper, Edward Hopper's work when he's making that painting, but it, um, I don't know, it, it conjures for me all kinds of things. It makes me think about To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, the movie To Kill a Mockingbird and the way the kind of sort of cold black and white that, um, that you see in that movie, but there's, there's something akin to that feeling in that painting. So can you talk a little bit about that painting? I think if you looked at other pieces from that era, you would also agree that there's a lot of of realism in the in the pieces. Uh, there's also some mystical things too, like a turning globe or a, a mysterious woman in the not in that particular painting, but others from that time period. But Hopper's house was originated from a drawing, sketch, and and uh, a uh, prototype that he did from one of the houses that mother grew up in and her family. So it was a farmhouse of type. Um, and he added lots of characteristics to it. So a little bird on the top, a, a, a dogwood in the front, um, lots of detail. And Holly, you were researching recently about Hopper and some of the virtual houses. So there's a kind of mystical uh, aspect of this when you think about what Hopper's house really means. You want to talk about that? Yes. So a couple of things, actually. I believe, I could be mistaken, but I believe that Edward Hopper passed away in 1968. And that's the year that dad did his first iteration of this painting. And it was simply the house and the meadow with the bird. And then he added the dogwood in front and the reflection of the dogwood's leaves in the window, which is also very mystical and ethereal, and the shadow of the leaves on the house. And this, I would I would venture to say that this particular painting uh, is a favorite among our family. We think it is exceptionally executed, one of his, one of his best, and of course it has personal meaning. Um, one of his former students, who Duke is actually uh, a friend of, who's now an, a very successful artist in New York, was, um, I think Duke, believe, I believe you gave um, 
this artist a copy of the book of dad's works and he saw the hopper's house and the story that he shared uh, i think i have this right is that he had written a paper about edward hopper and his houses and then he found out that that dad had painted a painting of of hopper's house and his thought was my goodness there is a hopper's house and he had talked to dad about it duke do you remember this conversation i i don't remember this conversation uh, is this who, DeWoody? DeWoody. Craig DeWoody? Or DeWoody. Jim DeWoody? I, no, I don't, remember, I don't remember that. Yeah, so his his point, he was writing, I think the, the way this goes is that he was writing an essay on Hopper. Um, and this would have, DeWoody was a student of Dad's in the early to mid-60s. And I think uh, Dad uh, would have graded this essay and he gave him, uh, I don't know, whatever comments at the as he was grading the essay and that he... Uh, believe that that in fact there is a Hopper's house, even though it's uh, one of these things that's more of a mystical quality and an ethereal quality, and um, that was that. And then year, many years go by, and just in the 2012 time frame, Duke sends DeWoody a copy of this book, and he sees Dad's painting done in '68 of Hopper's house, and he was really thrilled to see that in fact there everybody ha seems to have a Hopper's house. It's a fantastic painting, and it's one of the signature images for the exhibition. So for our listeners, if you go to WingateMuseum.org um, and you go to Art at Hendricks, you'll see this painting that we're talking about. So was this house located in Conway? No, it was actually in Woodruff County in uh, Mother's Home Place of Augusta, Arkansas. But I'll add one little comment about this, too. It, it was a family treasure. We donated it to Hendrix because we we couldn't divide it. Um, and before Dad's death, he actually made prints of it and gave it to most of our family members, so even extended into cousins and nieces and nephews. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One more thing about Hopper's house I, I would add, if I may, you know, I think Dad was very much doing an homage to Hopper and trying to channel that very Hopper type of, of mood. But if you actually compare the execution of what my father did versus Edward Hopper, it's vastly different. Hopper's brush strokes are loose and and they they have a they have a passion to them, but they are not precise. My dad, on the other hand, was extremely precise, particularly in that era and in paintings like that. You know, like you almost feel like you can see the, the paint flaking off of the house. Uh, and that's just not a level of realism that Hopper was going for, but that all meant you know, so very much to dad to try and achieve that type of technical precision. Yeah, very. that's very true. So what was it like growing up in your parents' home? What, what was that like? Can you share some stories? Can you give us a sense of what it's like to have a dad as an artist? And uh, was, your mom wasn't a practicing artist, right? Not, not so much, but mm -hmm. she was a great cook. Um, she loved family. She loved games. Uh, she, did, she did paint some and make a few things. She was a seamstress at times and made a few of our clothes. Unfortunately. Uh, reg regrettably, <laughs> yes. Um, but Dad was a painter, and I remember thinking as a child how great it was to tell my other schoolmates that my dad was a painter um, or an artist is what we called him. Uh, but he painted every day. He went to the studio every day, which was in a, a, a few feet from the house in a, its own structure. So he was there every day, and if 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 you were interested in what he was doing, or if you just needed him to for, for re some reason, you went to the studio, and that's where you'd find him. Mm -hmm. I I spent a lot of time with him as a, as a little kid in the studio, and, and he was tolerant of my presence there with whatever I was doing, and you know he would give me a, a box of like. Italian terrace tiles when he was working on his mosaics or, or probably left over from when he'd worked on those pieces. And I would play with those as if they were Legos or he would give me a discarded canvas board and let me, you know, scribble on it. And, and probably, you know, 
the most magical memory I have of childhood is being with him in the studio one day. I must have been pretty young and it had started to rain. And he carried me back from the studio up to the house on his shoulders while singing the uh, B.J. Thomas song, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. Uh, and that was just very magical for me. Yeah, that's a great story. Well, he, he was always uh, one to encourage all of his kids also to be active with drawing and painting. And all of us always enrolled in art class when we were in junior high and high school. And we all took a couple of art courses, although not from dad. Um, so he wanted us also to explore the arts. And I mentioned earlier that he was quite the intellectual and he loved to have a conversation literally about anything. Um, Duke mentioned that he wasn't religious uh, or he didn't he wasn't comfortable with uh, organized religion, but he loved to debate people about it. He loved to have a discussion about it. He loved he, he loved to have a discussion about politics. He would love to have a discussion about in, anything intellectual. So we grew up in a house um, that fortunately was very well educated and and had this uh, great appreciation for the arts. So all of us have a great appreciation for all of all of the arts in our family. Did you have a lot of students at your house? Did you did students come to your house or was that more something that just stayed at Hendrix? Did your parents have parties for students or oh, did they have they had parties. <laughs> 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 they, they definitely have parties. I don't remember very many students being there, but I remember lots of faculty. There were not very many students at the house. Um, we did have, there were a lot of faculty connections, however. I do remember one uh, student, and I'm not sure who, what his name was, but he arrived by boat because we lived on uh, Lake Beaver Fork. And he arrived by boat, and he brought a lemon meringue pie. And Mother was, of course, excited and pleased to get it, but somewhat taken aback because it had no cover. <laughs> and he here he went from, uh, you know, a couple of miles, uh, a, a boat ride with lots of air and lots of <laughs> dust circulating, and there's not a full covering or a saran wrap or anything over this pie. <laughs> That's a great memory. But yeah, we didn't see a lot of students say, at, at, at home. I'm not sure why, but it just wasn't something that uh, was a part of that uh, component of, of dad's life. I, I doubt if, if entertaining students was really encouraged, particularly in the Marshall T. Steele era. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I gathered, you know, I have the impression that in his early years, you know, dad was very, you know, intimidated and it took him a little while to learn to to be close to Marshall Steele. Uh, and I think he probably felt more comfortable in, in his skin once, you know, later presidents like Schilling came into play and he could he had entertain with the Schillings and the Kirsches and, and other folks like mm -hmm. that. Uh so it looked like he was an adjunct professor for a long time. Is that correct? No. No, no. Okay. Okay. So he started as an adjunct, but No. He's oh, okay. he, he he was he was full time permanent. I think that was just a typo in that art label that Rebecca okay. had written. No, okay. he, he came in as an assistant professor. Okay. Assistant associate and then full or something like that. Yeah. Right. And right. then emeritus. Yeah. That right. Mm -hmm. Which is of course which is, of course, something which would never, ever on earth happen today. <laughs> you know, his academic career is something that it could have only happened at that time and place. Right, right. So he was there pretty much by himself until 1967 when Bill Hawes joined him. Um, so can you talk a little bit about their relationship and how they shaped the art department? And, you know, obviously very different aesthetics with the two of them and... Um, just curious, you know, what that was like. Yeah, I think Bill was a specialist in pottery, in ceramics. Mm -hmm. And so that was a nice compliment to Dad because he was more of drawing and painting and printmaking and calligraphy. So it was great for him to have that compliment in the department. And they split other classes um, like drawing, freehand drawing and some of those kinds of things. I don't know if Bill taught uh, art history classes, the lecturing part, 
I'm really not sure if he did or not. Uh, but they worked well together and complemented each other in their various skills. So from what I've read, it seems that your dad worked really hard to integrate the arts into the broader curriculum at Hendrix. Um, he co-founded the Masterworks program at Hendrix, which integrated the history of art into in, an interdisciplinary humanities course. Um, you know, a lot of times art faculty are not interested in engaging in that level of trying to really build interdisciplinary courses because art is very different. But I think your dad had a real knowledge and a real comfort with art history, and that made it easy for him to connect um, with other faculty at Hendrix. Um, do you remember anything about your dad talking about his efforts in that area and how he worked to make visual arts accessible to all kinds of folks? I, I remember him doing an awful lot of legwork for Masterworks, you know, because the way that the program worked is, you know, it, all the professors that were in it, you know, volunteered to do it. And each professor would teach one subject, one masterwork each week. And all the other professors who were part of it were students with all the actual students. And so I remember very clearly dad at the beginning of every summer having a huge stack of books to read that would be in every discipline that Hendrix taught. So you know, one year, Dad, I remember he did the folk music of Woody Guthrie. That's what he taught, even though he was not a music person. Um, and people would, would kind of get out of their comfort zones. And I remember him prepping for that. And I remember him holding, I can, I can still see it, him sitting around in a circle in the gallery just outside of Reeves Recital Hall with all these professors getting ready and prepping all through the summer for the Masterworks program. And they, they really all seemed to enjoy it. And I think it it had a lasting impact on other Murphy-sponsored programs at Hendrix over, over the years. Yeah, it seems amazing. It was a really great opportunity for him to engage in a different way with his colleagues, too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mentioned before what an academic he was and how much he loved um, uh, all the all the arts and, and also literature and music. And he... Um, he he really loved being uh, able to engage in an intellectual discussion with that group of peers and with students in a in a different way, mm -hmm. and to get yeah. to be a student too. Right, right? that's the other real uh, value of that program is the the professors were also students. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, are there any students you mentioned? DeWoody is one of one of his students, but are there students of your dad that you remember, and do you have any stories you can tell about them? Frank Rowland's one of the first one, and there were others, but uh, he he's the one that stands out in my mind uh, because Dad had such a close relationship to him, and he must have been a student very early on, and then he became a colleague and a friend. Mm -hmm. So he comes to mind for me. I think in the same vein, Danny uh, Grace was a student and then a colleague, and so was Richard Raleigh uh, in the physics department was a student and then a colleague. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dr. Raleigh, I think, once shared how, you know, when he was just getting started as a faculty member, Hendrick's dad kind of took him aside and said, you need to you need to go to the quote unquote country club. You need to socialize with your colleagues if you want to be able to debate and understand and know them. In other words, go to the cafeteria and break bread. Mm -hmm. Be social. Don't just hide in your little office. Yeah, I know. I know. Danny Grace was someone that your dad um, that that really admired your dad, and um, they even worked on theater sets when he was in the theater department and had your dad participate with that. Did you all ever go to any of those performances? Um, did he like working on theater sets? Was that something he enjoyed? Um, Danny speaks very highly of him. And, and his role at Hendrix? Well, I think the answer to that is yes, yes, and yes. You know, we, we did <laughs> often uh, participate in, in um, going to see Hendrix plays, and he loved being involved in the theater and with students. Just the opportunity for him to paint alongside some students on props, that was just a fun afternoon for him. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think he absolutely enjoyed that. And he did that for uh, several years after he actually retired. So that was a really cool thing for him to come back on campus and do and hang out with Danny and, and the kids and, and paint props. Mm -hmm. 
And Danny organized the Don Marr collection here at Hendrix um, that was uh, that uh, includes works that were donated to Hendrix by former students. So there are pieces that are labeled within the collection that are um, called the Don Marr collection. Are you all familiar with that that Danny did? I, I'm that is vaguely familiar to me. I didn't quite realize it was called the Don Marr collection, but there are, I am aware of some pieces um, like from Dan Rizzi and perhaps Jim, De, Jim DeWoody and others that are part of the permanent collection here. But how lovely that they're part of the Don Marr collection. That's mm -hmm. that's very nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's really terrific. And Danny, uh, not long after I got here, Danny took me around to show me the pieces in different buildings and, you know, who the artists were and why they had contributed to that collection. So, um, you know, so I think it speaks to the importance of your dad um, as a figure at Hendrix, um, even after he had retired. Um, so in the late 1960s, Hendricks commissioned a new library for the campus from the world-famous architect Philip Johnson. Uh, the records show that your parents flew to New York to meet with him and discuss his plans. Do you know anything about that trip and that meeting? We do. That's, uh, that's a really fun story to tell. Duke, do you want to start? Yeah, I'll take it. Uh, so they, they came to New York, and the, the purpose of the trip uh, was to meet with Philip, and they had Phil lunch with Philip in um, at the Four Seasons restaurant in the Seagram's Hotel, which the Seagram's Hotel is one of the most famous skyscrapers in the world, and the Four Seasons restaurant, uh, which just unfortunately closed recently, um, was the famous space that Philip Johnson had designed. So they had lunch there with Philip at one of the most expensive restaurants in the city where, you know, people like, you know, Jackie Onassis would regularly go. And Philip had his regular table there. So mom and dad went there and they had lunch with him. And then that afternoon, Philip and or one of his assistants took mom and dad on a tour of all the latest up and coming artists of the era. Right. And the, the point was to pick out pieces to borrow to send to Hendrix to be displayed in honor of the opening of the library. So they went to you know the studios of several artists, including Dan Flavin. And Julio Lepark are the two that I remember specifically. And they, they looked at all of these various pieces. What's what's most interesting about this story is when they were, you know, visiting Dan Flavin's studio, I assume Flavin was not there. Dad made some sort of remark to Philip Johnson about, you know, is this really even art? This is really just a piece of a light fixture. This is a GE, right? Um, and you know, I think Philip kind of chuckled about that. So that's and that's that, that comes back around here in a minute when you get to after the, the, the exhibition is over, which basically what happened, they have the exhibition, you know, and, you know, they open the library and it's a big event. I think a, one of the senators came to speak at the opening of that library and Philip was there. They had all these great artists from, you know, or the artwork there from from the pieces. And then after it was all over. In some form or fashion, Philip then sent to my father, either sent to him or he left it behind, what he claimed was an original Dan Flavin. Um, just because he knew dad would appreciate it so much because he appreciated Dan Flavin's style of art. And I, I guess my father, being an epic realist, you know, thought this was just, you know, whatever, didn't make anything of it. So he promptly took that Dan Flavin and he hung it up in his studio and used it as a light fiction. <laughs> and... And unfortunately, Dad's studio burned in 1975. So we don't really know if what Philip Johnson sent to our father was an actual Dan Flavin or just something he picked up at a hardware store. <laughs> Either way, it burned in 1975. <laughs> Maybe it was the Dan Flavin that burned. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I suspect it probably was, which, you know, it's unfortunate because if we could have if we could have saved that and documented what that would have been, that would have just been a great piece of art mm -hmm. for Hendrix to have had. Mm -hmm. Wow. What, what an opportunity. And, and your mom went along and had a great time and she went along and what she, when, what they would tell the, the story, uh, all that she really had to talk about was how horrifically terrifying the cab <laughs> ride was from the morning. <laughs> <laughs> she was not, she was not a relaxed passenger in the automobile. Or traveling to say the of least. any means. No, no, no. 
<laughs> oh my gosh, that's great. That's terrific. Well, the art department now is considerably larger and it's located in the relatively new art complex um, with fantastic studios. There's three buildings, um, you know, it occupies a big piece of land. What do you think your dad would think about that? Well, I think he would be really excited about it. Um, I, I am aware that when he came to the campus in 59 that they, I don't even know the name of the building, but um, I, I have a, a colleague that I work with who was a student then, and she said it used to be this pitiful little building that they worked out of. Um, and I think Trishman was constructed around 62 or something mm -hmm. like that, and I, I gather Dad probably had a hand in helping uh, get Trishman um, built. But I think he, he would be really delighted with them having that full complex. In fact, I had an Allison's daughter, Julia Lee, was a, a, a printmaking student over there, and, and uh, that was around 2013. And um, we happened to unearth one of Dad's etching uh, copper plates. And mm. he he had found it a few months before he passed away, and he wanted Julia Lee to take it to the etching studio and run some prints. And we weren't able to do that until, unfortunately, after he passed away. And so Julia Lee recruited me and, and showed me around the whole department. It's lovely. And we spent several afternoons in the printmaking studio running off some prints of this this big copper plate. It was a, a great experience. He, he, would, he would have been delighted. Yeah, from a broom closet to a multi-building complex, it's a really fabulous progression. I have to believe that part of the reason why that happened was because your dad was there. Your dad taught for 41 years. He made the arts a really important part of Hendrick's life. Um, you know, the, these are always foundational issues that happen before these kinds of things are able to come to fruition. So um, I think your dad really built a strong, strong group of people that were committed to the arts, very much so. And he was very welcoming to not only art majors, but non-majors. Uh, mm -hmm. He wanted everyone to experiencing uh, either art history classes or studio classes. So mm -hmm. it was not something you had to be a major to entertain those types of classes. Well, and it's one of the great things about Hendrix that, you know, students take classes, mm -hmm. you know, students that are pre-med take art classes as part of the overall curriculum to really be well-rounded unto the whole person, as the motto says. So... So is there a painting each one of you would like to talk about that your dad did that's a particular favorite of yours? I mean, I know there's hundreds and hundreds, but it would be interesting, I think, for our audience to hear uh, about any pieces that you in particular like. I think I would like to do that, but before I do that, I'd like to just talk in a little more generally about dad's art. One of the expressions that he had is that, and, and not just expression, a way of life and, and the way he uh, created the pieces that he created. And his view was that art's not just a pretty picture. It's much more than that. It's an opportunity to express concepts, ideas, concerns, and he expressed those in lots of different ways not just in uh, uh, realist, the realistic things we've talked about and his, his uh, detail, but also in other concepts, uh, cultural issues, political uh, issues of the day, social issues. He, he, he was very expressive in his art with all of those types of... of um, concerns or worries, and he would, it wasn't always obvious. Sometimes it was very implicit, Some sometimes not so much. Sometimes it was, uh, it was a beautiful picture, but with a title or um, uh, something that he'd, a poem that he had uh, borrowed from someone to make a point. So he was often mm -hmm. expressing himself in his art. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
That's very well said, Allison. I, I think you, you make me remember what he also used to say quite frequently is, you know, is good art has form, content, and meaning. And that's a very traditional perspective on defining art. And that's just who he was. He was, he was not, he was not a, he, he loved modern architecture. He loved modern art, but he was not an abstractionist. He was a realist and he wanted art to have form, content, and meaning. I think the meaning was particularly important. And he also described his work as serial comic surrealism. And he had a lot of paintings. In fact, his favorite ones uh, had those uh, issues of the day with some kind of wave or flare of humor introduced. He definitely believed that you had to be able to laugh at yourself. And he did that. He was able to laugh at himself and at others. And sometimes you, you could sense that in his work. Mm -hmm. So what artists did he like? All of them. <laughs> except Dan Flavin. <laughs> yes, except Dan Flavin. On, on this concept of the serio-comic surrealism, I know he really admired Rene Magritte. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And, yeah. and he he and he um, often paid an homage to many of his favorite artists in his in his works. And he's, in fact, Allison mentioned this point about art is not just another pretty picture. Well, he he actually did a painting of a picture and picture p i t c h e r and and labeled it. This is not a pretty picture. So um, th that that would fall into his uh, serial comic genre. You, you asked about favorite paintings. Um, the, the one I'll pick is this really iconic piece. It was done in the same time frame as uh, Hopper's House, and it's called Lakeview. And it is this really large, beautiful, it falls in his romantic realism genre. And it is this painting of uh, a pine tree and a lake shore and a lake scene. And it is very reminiscent of the scene that was right off the back of the the uh, the beach that we lived on there in Lake Beaver Fork. And the thing about it that's so amazing to me is, well, first of all, it's very large in scale. It's actually painted on two large doors that are connected together. Together with a hinge in the middle. And so it's this epically large, um, large scale painting. And from a distance, uh, if you're standing 20 feet away from it, you see this large pine tree and a view of the hills and the clouds and the lake, and it's really beautiful. And the closer you get to it, the more detail you see, the detail in the bark of the tree. And then in the shoreline that's in the distance you would, that you would have never seen uh, from a distance, the, the fence and the fishing boat that's pulled up at the shore and the cows, or maybe it was a horse, one of the two horses he painted. And there's very much a very small detail in the middle of this door, literally in the middle of a door that he painted on. It's really uh, a majestic painting. And uh, I was lucky enough after they, they moved into town from Lake Beaver Fork, they didn't have a, a wall in their new home big enough to accommodate the paintings. And I now get to be the, the proud owner of of Lakeview. So you yeah. still get to see it. Every day. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, we're pretty lucky in that way. But on this painting that Holly's talking about, it was actually one of my grandparents, mother's parents, friends, who commissioned him to do it. And for a big space that they had in their farmhouse. And once after he did it, she refused it. So... We had it forever mm -hmm. <laughs> and happy to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Duke or Allison, do you guys want to talk about a painting that you're particularly fond of? Go ahead, Duke. Sure. It, it, sure, if I may, I would, I, I'd, I'd kind of like to talk about two that I think respond to one another. Uh, so there's a painting called Wafted to the Old Land, and that's a small fraction of the full title. The full title is an actual paragraph that reads like something right out of Faulkner. Um, and my father gave me this piece in around, I don't know, probably around 2000, probably around the time he retired. I think it hung in his office for many years. Uh, and he sent it to me. And I remember he said to me, I'm giving this to you because I don't think anybody else would want it. <laughs> and and it's very much in the serial comedic 
style of his work. And it's very hard to understand because it's wild. It's just, it's an absolutely wild painting. It's large. It's a four by four diamond. And you see a lot of things. There's a portrait of Trishman. There's a tree hanging kind of in the middle with some clouds. There's this weird little leprechaun who's kind of flying in on a rainbow. But most critically, off to the side with his head bowed is this dark figure, this kind of shadowy African-American man. And on the tree is a political poster. And what you're seeing here are two characters who recur throughout my father's artwork for many, many, many years. One of them is the Southern raconteur, and that's, you know, the older black man. And the other is a character by the name of Noah Webster Greenleaf. And Noah Webster Greenleaf, as dad admitted to me, was a very, very thinly veiled caricature of Arkansas's horrific segregationist governor, Orville Faubus. So what's happening in this painting, and I confess, it took me many years of studying it and reading this paragraph title to get it. Was basically what he's depicting is an event in which some cultural critic came to Hendrix, hence the view of Trishman. I think probably somebody like Stanley Fish. I would love it if there's anybody out there listening to this podcast who can tell us if Stanley Fish ever came to Hendrix and kind of talked down to all the hicks. And at the same time, you know, you still have Orville Favus, who's still a very old guy at the time, who's stealing the stories of the Southern raconteur. And he's really he's really a broken down person. And it's it's a sad, sad painting. And like I said, it took me years to figure out. But what was even more revelatory was when I finally realized that the painting that it goes with, which was is painted in a very similar style, which is a piece called Rebirth of the Southern raconteur, is completely different. In Rebirth of the Southern Raconteur, you have the Raconteur, but he's standing up, you know, proud and strong, even though he's only got one leg. He's got a flower in his lapel, and he's looking right, right at the viewer, right? Even though you've got the KK right behind, KKK right behind him, you know, white hood and all. You've got, you know, a noose in the tree. You've got, you know, the one percenters riding through, you know, the, the streets of the town and a big, you know, Rolls Royce with a flying butt as a hood ornament. I mean, it's it's funny. It's funny in the, all the scenes he's depicting, but he's saying something quite serious. And it's about this individual reclaiming his story and being reborn as a storyteller. This piece uh, was sold by the Heights Gallery in some point in the 90s, I would assume, and bought by some family who took it to Milan, Italy, where we presume it still is. And I just, I love to imagine what on earth they think of it. <laughs> It's definitely wow. one of a kind. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. great. So they were meant to be companion pieces. Are they both diamond-shaped? Uh, they're not diamond. Okay. Uh, they're not both diamond. Um, Wafted is diamond, and Rebirth of the Southern Raconteur is an octagon. But, okay. but they're clearly of the same era, and mm-hmm. I suspect meant to respond to one another, mm-hmm. if not one being right before the other. And why did your dad choose canvas shapes like that or turn canvases on their side like that? Do you know? You, you know, he built all of his own canvases. He was, he, he, or most of them, not all of them, but a lot of them he did. He built, he built the octagons and the diamonds for sure. Mm-hmm. For certain. Yeah, I, I think in the later years, he did less of building them himself, but you're right, Duke. Yeah, he certainly, I, I, I think he probably did it just to be more visually interesting, mm-hmm. right? To get more attention, particularly if he was doing a particularly bold piece. It's like, so many paintings are squares or rectangles. Well, why why can't they be a circle? Why can't they be a diamond? Why can't they be a triangle? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he was he was a maverick. Dad Dad was not afraid to try new things. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Allison, do you have a piece you want to talk about? Oh, I could talk about Sea Rock City or Way of the Poet, mm-hmm. or I have lots of favorites. But I think the one I would like to talk about is. The um, model of modern maturity. It's a relatively wow. small work. It's one that we all own prints of, and you know, luckily we we did a lot of that, where we reproduced his work so that we could all enjoy some of the really special pieces. And this was one. And it's a older, well, a gray-haired man is sitting on a front porch of an old dilapidated structure. He has, um, well, he's sitting in a plastic chair, like a 
you know, um, school chair, a school chair perhaps, but it, it's but it's just a chair, no no table, desktop or anything, just a plastic chair. It's uh, he's there's a geranium that's kind of sickly looking that's uh, in a pot on the porch. Uh, there are some other things in the in the vision of the of the the picture. There's also a little dog in the front that I didn't even see until later after I had it framed, and he's this black dog, and he's got a red tongue and and he's but he's in the foreground in the grass and ironically, not long after Dad died, I ended up with a dog that looked like this, and I didn't recognize it until I looked back at that at the reproduction of that painting and I saw shadow is my dog is in that painting. So it was uh, particularly moving for me and I felt like dad was speaking to me about this dog. But I also have, have, as I've looked back on that piece, I think of that as one of dad's self-portraits and he was talking about aging and how uh, things around you age too. Not just your body, but your homestead and your your the your plants, which are a fixture for something else, right? But but the things around you are beginning to age, and and in the model for modern maturity is your front porch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think you meant that title, or ironically? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, it sounds like a great painting. And it how is. big is it? You said it's not very big. You know, and it's got a multi-shape, too. Is it a hexagon, octagon? One of the two. Uh, I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm. It's it's not real big. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, two and a half, maybe, by two and a half? I don't mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. I don't even yeah. know who owns it. So he sold a lot of work, and so a lot of pieces are in private collections. Uh in Arkansas and elsewhere. Yes, he was quite a prolific artist. And Mm -hmm. uh, we have spent a lot of time just trying to, well, let me just say this. His best skills were not administrative skills. So having a comprehensive list of all of his works is not something that he did a good job of. Mm -hmm. And so we, uh, I mentioned this book that we put together shortly before his death. And I worked on this with him for many weeks before we published it. And he was even surprised. He he would, in, in the months leading up to his passing, he would be up in the middle of the night unable to sleep. And he'd open this book and say, wow, I painted a lot of paintings. Mm-hmm. And it only even includes a fraction of of the hundreds, literally hundreds of, of paintings that he produced. He, he probably painted more than 500 major, what I would call major, major works. Mm-hmm. And so uh, one of the really cool things that's happening right now, well, it's kind of sad at the same time, is that um, a lot of people around Arkansas and Conway in particular collected dad's artwork. Many of his, their, their uh, social circle, their, their friends, they all love to own a, a Don Mar or several Don Mars. And uh, those that were unable to pass them down to their kids, we're seeing them now show up in antique stores and estate sales and even sometimes garage sales out of state. They, they show up all over the place. And so uh, we, I think all of us have collected a, uh, a Don Mar or two that have shown up in, in that way. So we are always on the lookout for Don Mar paintings that are uh, for sale or auction. He loved to sell his work. He loved to sell his work. It was important to him to sell his work. It was affirmation. Uh, in the early days, it was important to mother too, but it was more about budgeting. And so... She definitely <laughs> wanted him to sell uh, sofa paintings or to produce sofa paintings. So, but it was a, he definitely felt affirmed, uh, particularly when their social friends uh, bought his work. So, did he work with the dealer? Did he have multiple dealers or did he just sell them himself or all of the above? All, all of the above. Okay. For, for many years, he was represented by the Heights Gallery in Little Rock with uh, uh-huh. Mitch Jansonius, and he was a former student. 
Do you guys mm-hmm. remember? He was a former student. I think so. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we do have some records of the, and they sold, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 paintings of his. They sold the one to um, Milan, the owners in Milan. So he was represented there. And then often he would have people out just to walk down to the studio and, and look at what he had available in the studio. You'd see him doing that uh, many times. Mm-hmm. Did did they keep a lot of the paintings themselves in, in your home? Yes, your childhood home, yeah. Oh yes, yeah. and they yeah. were we'd circulate all the time, mm-hmm. um, and which was really kind of fun because we've never known a life without art on our walls. Mm-hmm. Did he? And the did idea, he? Did he trade with other artists for pieces? Maybe mm-hmm. some, and yeah. he certainly had stu- no, a he had little bit pieces that he, were students. He did a little. Mm-hmm. He, he, Jim DeWoody, who is probably his most successful student, you know, in terms of achieving his own personal fame, gave dad a couple of pieces mm-hmm. uh, that he was very proud of. Uh, same with Dan Rizzi. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, and, and, and also even Chris Barrier, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sent him a number of pieces. Mm-hmm. So I, I would presume dad reciprocated, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dan Rizzi tells this great story about how he came to Hendrix because he was going to be on the swim team. And uh, then he decided he didn't really like doing that. And so the coach asked him, what do you want to do? And he said, I want to make art. So the swim coach marched him over to your dad and said, and said here, this kid wants to be an artist. <laughs> and your mm-hmm. dad took him in and look at what a career he's had. You know, it's amazing. Yeah, great career. You know? so, so tell me, what what would you guys like to say that, about your dad that I haven't asked you about? Are, are there facets of his career, his life, your life with him uh, that you want to share that I just haven't touched on? You know, I think that he must have been a really remarkable professor. And we have heard from how it seems like hundreds, but maybe not that many, but story after story and letter after letter from his former students about what a positive impact Mm -hmm. that he made on their lives, whether they were art majors or whether they weren't, whether they were in the sciences program and how he really opened their eyes to the world of art and how to look at the world through a different lens instead of through the biology lens or the scientific lens. And and we heard about how encouraging he was and how generous he was with his time and his attention in helping these students be successful. And um, anyway, I think I just think that the the testimonials that we have heard from his former students makes me think that he must have been really just an entertaining and charismatic uh, professor and and someone that, um, well, I wish I'd had a course with him. Mm-hmm. B- building upon that, Holly, I think he was also just really warm and and very intentionally made himself available as a mentor to his students. When he would talk about his early life, particularly his years at uh, the University of Tennessee as an undergraduate, he had an art professor, I, I believe his name was Buck Ewing, who really took him under his wing and nurtured him. And, and it, you know, this is a point in, my, in his life when dad was really kind of, you know, struggling and he didn't have a lot of money. And, and Buck would pay him to make art or pay him to do stuff around the house. And I'm sure dad probably desperately needed that money. So Buck Ewing really helped him, you know, kind of survive undergraduate. And I think it was his mission once he got to Hendricks to give back. And I think he there were a number of students over the years that he just really connected with uh, and wanted to really help inspire them, not only to be great artists, but to live great lives. And I would add some life lessons that I when I think about dad and think about how he lived his life and and the things that. He helped us understand there are really three things that come to mind. One is laugh at yourself. And we've talked a lot about his humor and how he introduced that into his artwork and the serial comic surrealism pieces that he had. And that was real important, just to have that humor and not only laugh at some of the situations we encounter, but be able to laugh at yourself. Another one, and we... Duke touched a lot about the racial themes and some of the cultural themes and things that we see in 
dad's art and social themes that are so it was so important to him. One of the things he said to me one day that I've always remembered, and I don't, although I don't remember the context, but he said, one day we will all be the same color. And I just think that's kind of profound. And I think that if people today thought that way, would it make a difference in their behavior or their attitudes? So I think that's really important. And then the third one, which we've also talked about a little bit today, is how he paid tribute to other artists and poets and musicians and uh, even politicians and other leaders. And I think that even if you're not an artist, the lesson is pay tribute to those you respect and desire in some way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's a great summation. That's excellent. It's very, very true. So, well, I want to thank all of you for joining me today. And thanks to our listeners. If you want to learn more about the exhibition, please visit our website at wingatemuseum.org. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for joining Whamacast produced by the Wingate Museum of Art at Hendricks College. Our engineer is Megan Stevenson. Graphics by Amanda Cheatham and research support from Rebecca Jolly. Our theme music was written by Hendricks student Cameron Minor and performed by Cameron Minor, Scott Minor, Danielle Kuntz, and Campbell Cook. All rights reserved by Hendricks College. Have a great day.